Hello, this is Danny Boyle, the director of 28 Days Later. Uh, and I'm Alex Garland, a writer. So actually we shifted the... Um, I don't know if the Fox ever noticed this, but we shifted the, uh, the timing of the music on this um, opening credit sequence on their logo like that. This is the stuff we mocked up. This is based on... When we first started this, um, Alex wrote all this, these, these images for um, the beginning, a lot of which were based on Saurius Samoras footage from Sierra Leone and we debated at one point about using the real footage of of terrible civil unrest and death and violence and um, we decided rightly I think that we wouldn't use anything that involved any real real deaths and the, the footage that is in there that uh, does involve deaths like the chain uh, the, like the necklacing there it was all mocked up yeah in London in Docklands, actually, yeah, on a very nice day in Docklands. And we tried to make it look like real footage from the past. We shot the film on DV and we used the news footage at the beginning helps you into the kind of slight different quality of the visuals. And this is Johnny, who's um, a chimp from Stuttgart, which is where we had to go to film this sequence. The, there are only two working troops of chimps now for use in the film industry. One's in Los Angeles and one's in Stuttgart. It's a kind of family circus place there. Amazing people who were very kind to us while we shot there over three or four days. We did debate, in fact, having, the, uh, having them have different nationalities. Like, for instance, we were going to make them German. At one point, we were going to make them Scandinavian. We were going to make them... Yeah. Japanese, and even at one point we thought of making them American. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, the quarantine idea eventually locked them down to the UK. And this was really where we were going to try and get um, as much exposition as we needed just out of the way in this opening sequence. And uh, I suppose we've got a little bit dropped in uh, later, but we had this idea which was really just to uh, set the premise up as quickly as possible and then return to it as little as possible. It looks, it looks very distressing for the chimps, the cages that they're in and the, and the bed that, this, that he's lying on, that Johnny's lying on there. But um, we did all this obviously with... Um, uh, we were guided completely into what, in what we were allowed to do and the sizes of the cages and things like that by the guy who... Uh, who looks after the chimps, who's, who breeds them really, brings them up from, from birth really, and keeps them until they're in their 40s. Um, interestingly enough, one of the reasons there are so few working chimps anymore is that because of recent legislation, you, you're not allowed to, they're not allowed to put down chimps anymore because you can only work them until they're about seven or eight years old and they live to about 40 or 50. But for the last 20, 30 years of their life, they're... They're very difficult to work with. But this man works with them right the way through. And they adore him. They were wonderful. So this is the setup, as um, Alex was talking about. Um, and I remember when I first read this scene, I thought what a wonderful premise it was for a film, this idea of a psychological virus. We've all seen movies with viruses escaping, but they're usually some kind of biological, chemical agent... But the idea 
which is fa- fantasy, which is a slight sci-fi premise of a psychological virus, I just think is a brilliant original idea and a fantastic premise to start the film with. This is sort of interesting for me, this sequence, because uh, I think this scene more than any other is, is, is pure genre in the way that it's written, um, but in the way that it's shot and the way that Danny executed it, it, it sort of pulls it away from that. Um, and uh, it, it was quite, quite strange for me watching this for the first time because I think uh, I had to get used to that, to that. Uh, different approach with the rest of the the film uh, it was supposed to be moving away from genre but this um, this felt almost like a set piece Um, but actually the execution of it I think is terrific The other thing I remember, it's always useful to remember the very first time you ever read a script because that's the last time you're as close to it, you have as close an experience as the audience are going to have, seeing it fresh. And this was the thing that stuck in my mind, the use of the title as a subtitle. There was no title, if you like, I thought was brilliant. I love that. And so we were determined not to have any names up front or things like that. It's also that that's our Tootsie cut. <laughs> um, where uh, I think in Tootsie... Dustin Hoffman realises in order to make it as an actor he has to dress as a woman and then you just cut to him walking down the street as a woman and uh, you never show him dressing up I think they, they show that later and um, that's sort of what we did here was we tried to cut to the chase but we put him in um, green pyjamas instead um, or no pyjamas <laughs> or no pyjamas as it starts off um, so this is shot in a, a... We wanted... There's two types of hospitals in Britain, really. There's, um, there's the more Victorian type, um, and then there's the modern type, which are usually associated with private healthcare. But actually, this is, a, this is a national health hospital in Acton and is a day hospital where people come in for day operations and had a wonderful kind of modern quality about it. We always try to emphasise uh, the modern, really, in, 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 in British life, really, I suppose. It's just a choice, really, rather than looking backwards and um, it has a feeling about it almost of a, a hotel almost some, some, somehow kind of modern hotel especially in the, the wider shots coming up Killing was very worried about doing these scenes naked as actors always are but we had the <laughs> usual clothes set etc all that nobody was allowed to make any jokes all day in case they were misinterpreted <laughs> Obviously, we made a big choice about whether there were going to be bodies anywhere. And indeed, we did shoot some bodies in this opening sequence. But we decided to follow one of our instincts, which was that we were better, rather than trying to litter the world with corpses, that we were better to kind of try and make it almost symbolic, really, that the emptiness of the place stood for something that had gone wrong rather than specific reality, really, of... Corpses lying around and blood everywhere, or whatever. Sort of um, uh, atmosphere and surrealism over plot requirements, really. It's, yeah. uh, it's like an aesthetic decision, I suppose, in a way. 
but it's something that we've been picked up on a few times why aren't there more bodies around and there's not really a good logical reason for it in storytelling terms it's just because it feels more interesting and uh, hopefully that's a legitimate reason So, so my, my life as a uh, since I've uh, become involved in making films has centered around two questions so far. One of which is, how did you get you and McGregor to come out of the toilet in Train Spotting? The second one was, what was it like to work with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio? I'm grateful that both of them have been replaced by. So, how did you shoot the London scenes on this one? And um, the answer is in the most obvious way you'd expect, really, which is that we, we managed somehow to close the streets down, albeit only for brief moments of time. We used multi-cameras, the digital cameras, for, um, and we'd film for maybe 90 seconds or two minutes where the traffic was held back by these wonderful traffic marshals that we used who were students and friends. And, and my daughter, Grace, was one of them, actually, holding back the traffic at different times. So, um, um, And we, we managed to get... This footage that that is a great advert for the film, I think, really, in a way, is one of the things that's helped us sell the premise of the film really um, enthrallingly, I hope. I think somewhere around here there's one of our deliberate mistakes coming up. I've always imagined that there's a car moving somewhere in the background. It's not here, where is it? It's along the embankment. This is Alex is convinced there's a car somewhere there. We've missed <laughs> it. it was while you were talking. I think there is. We a think car. he's just trying to undermine the film. <laughs> uh, this you wouldn't be allowed permission to do this. We did this before September 11th, and to put a bus on its side in Whitehall, literally just outside Downing Street, where the Prime Minister residence is, you just wouldn't be allowed to. Now I don't think we got, we only got away with it by the skin of our teeth and by the inventiveness of Mark Tilsley, the designer, who swore blind to them that he could get it in and out of there in 15 minutes, and he proved himself right. I think they were really surprised that we kept to our word. We said to these places, look, we'll go in and we'll shoot, and we'll be out of there by 7.30 or 8 o'clock in the morning. And they're used to, I think, the bullshit that film people are full of, you know, where actually they end up taking 18 hours to shoot it. But actually we did each day, we kept to our word. This stuff is based on a photograph out of Cambodia, uh, after Pol Pot was driven out of Phnom Penh and um, there was money all in the streets because it was useless and there's various kind of references like that that we had you know which just gave us a kind of um, a visual image to kind of add to details of the story as he makes his way through the city This is a very busy part of London, Tottenham Court Road, and Centre Point, famous empty building, or partially empty now. When we originally 
we used we didn't use music at first in the sequence, and that used to that moment with the alarm going off used to give you a heart attack if you didn't have some kind of background music. So we used this track from Godspeed You Black Emperor, this French Canadian anarchist who gave us permission to use their music, this driving, apocalyptic, climactic music, which I think is a wonderful addition to the film. And this is this image that uh, became, I don't know, uh, prescient's not the right word because it's after the fact, but this was shot pre-September the 11th, because what was it from? Was it Peking? It, it's an earthquake in China where they, years ago where they'd done the same thing of trying to contact each other when normal communication breaks down, yeah. But we did it literally because there were, we came up with the idea because there were billboards round Eros, the statue in Piccadilly Circus, and we thought, how can we use that? So. If you're flowing, one kind of good, like something good comes out of things always, really, in a way, good, or good ideas come out of even problems, you know, stuff. So, And I have to thank the girl who um, spent three months writing up all those notices <laughs> for that board. This is a church. We did a lot of filming in East London. This is a church in Spitalfields, uh, not in Spitalfields, in um, Limehouse in East London. Um, it's one of the famous um, Hawksmoor. Hawksmoor churches. There are seven of them, which is supposedly in the shape of a pentangle. Something like that. Something yeah. like that. Some satanic thing. Um, don't know whether that's true or not. Well, if you read From Hell by Alan Moore, he goes into a lot of detail about those churches. He goes into all that. Um, this was fantastic fun explaining to the warden of the church what we were going to write on his wall. <laughs> but we were honest, and he gave us permission, and you can just about read it, which is how we wanted it to, to look. So what we were saying earlier about the bodies in the street, when you decide on that and you clear them all out, then we came up with this idea that we'd put them all, we'd suddenly we'd put all the bodies in a church then, you know, which is sort of was sort of influenced by stories that we'd heard about, particularly like stuff you read about Rwanda and places like that, with corpses ending up in churches and things like that. And we thought they'd, it'd just be a dumping house for corpses, some kind of mortuary or makeshift cemetery for the corpses. And um, and it gave us it gave us the next kind of. It felt like the film was evolving then out of the circumstances, and and that he was be, he was understanding as he went along in the way that we are as well because he knows nothing like we know nothing or virtually nothing Hello? Hello? All the people lying down, all those corpses that you see in the church are actually volunteers who turned up for us and we, I think we gave them a free cup of tea or something, some huge generous offering to ask them to turn up for a couple of hours. They were students because we couldn't afford to hire extras in a conventional way. We didn't have the kind of money to do that. And there were people who just turned up and helped us. The man who played the priest was an enormous help to us. He did lots of workshops with us early on about movement. He's a brilliant kind of movement artist and... Um, I did all these different states, showing the actors. Uh, I haven't really got time to go into it here, but he was he was an enormous help in developing the kind of physical movement of the infected, which he starts off there, and is a kind of erratic, frenetic, violent, kind of impatient 
gesture, a bit like the, the feeling of rage, really. And this was the, the day everyone wanted to be on set to see this petrol station blow up. 200 grand or something it was the most expensive single thing we did, wasn't it? Apart from your fee, Alex, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. Um, it was so actually... I only it was... 200 grand. <laughs> bring that up with um, Actually, I think it cost £250,000 in total. But the thinking was, which seems like an enormous, and is an enormous amount of money, obviously, but what we've always feel is that when you put the film out to be for a mainstream audience, they're not going to take, they're not going to say, oh, it's a British film, we won't mind if the explosions aren't very good. <laughs> they want, you know, they want it to be as good as a Mel Gibson film as, you know, you know whatever's out there, really, that's, that we, you're competing with in the multiplex. So it's, I think it's money well spent, and it's the end of our first reel, so you have this extraordinary sequence which starts with London empty and builds eventually to this incredible explosion across it. We used many, many cameras. It's brilliantly cut, I think, by our editor, Chris Gill, who did some wonderful cutting for us on the film to make the best of our limited resources always. That's based on a photograph, a famous photograph from Northern Ireland of some people escaping from a bomb blast by just happening between, to be in the gaps between windows as the bomb goes off inside. This is Canary Wharf tube station um, on the Docklands Light Railway, which is one of the modern pieces of infrastructure in London. And the idea of this, although we built this in the studio, well, we partly built some of it in the studio, uh, was that it was a shop underneath in one of the tube stations where they hide, uh, where they're kind of living for a bit. These, these two other survivors that he's meeting. It was a weirdly difficult scene, this one. I never felt that from uh, my end I, I cracked it really at all. Um, it was a tricky one because like the opening scene, it required exposition and uh, fitting exposition into conversation and dialogue is a, is a nightmare really. And uh, it, it, it's an art and um, I was really struggling here. Um, Danny did a, a shot uh, from Jim over to Selena, which is coming up quite soon, that uh, allowed for us to play around a bit in ADR to uh, mess around with what was being said. And uh, it, it, never, it never felt quite right to me. And in fact, we, we shot this scene twice, didn't we? Yeah, uh, we, we reshot a, a whole section of it. In a, we rebuilt half the half the shot in a studio later and reshot a section of it really uh, to take account of a slightly different exposition yeah i think there's a couple of lines that work one of them is when jim starts asking about where are people's parents and they just say well they're dead and it seems like if you can convey information through something as simple as that that's the best way to do it it gets a lot across very quickly the audience fills in all the gaps uh, around that quite quickly. Um, uh, and I think it's something to do with confidence, really, um, knowing how much and how little you can put in. And this is that, uh, what, what do you call this? It's not a tracking shot, is it? What, what do you call this? <laughs> you know what I mean? You left it's me a lots pan. of space to sort of piss yeah, around. Yeah, it's just a pan. It's an it's interminable pan. pan. You need a doctor to tell you that. It's the blood. Um, I love the idea of them living in... The idea that they're living off Maltesers and coke and kind of junk food that would remain, that has an endless best by day, you know, best before, so that they can they end up living off that kind of that kind of stuff really, rather than fresh food. I thought was a great image for it. I love that.
day before the TV and radio stopped broadcasting. There was a different joke at the beginning of it when the guy with the mask came in. Didn't he used to come in and used to... Wasn't it Luke said to Darth Vader, I know what you got for Christmas? Yeah. He says, why? I felt your presence. That's right. <laughs> so it's like that one, but it was too short or something. It's too I short, remember. yeah. Better joke, actually. <laughs> that was a different one, yeah. Um, Kill's very good here because he has to kind of take on board so much information, you know, and keep you rooted in his... In, in his world, really, well, because your instinct would be to think these people are bullshitting, you know, it's some kind of mighty trick that's being played upon me by... Who's that, who's that guy who plays that trick on you, you've been framed, or... Beadle. Beadle, he thinks, you know. That must go through his mind at some point, then it's some mighty TV reality stunt. Um, but he kind of keeps you rooted in his, in his own dilemma, really. And it's the first moment where he... This thing about a father figure for him is crucial, that he will not believe that his father especially is dead and that that will have to be proved to him. And then through the film he has a whole series of different father figures that he relates to, really, as he searches for himself, I suppose, in some way. You never go anywhere alone unless you've got no choice. We had lots of rules for the infected which we basically thought were terribly important and then ignored them whenever we wanted, i.e., you know, you don't travel at night, only travel during the day. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. I never saw that as a rule, that night yeah. one in a way, but, but yeah, um, we took lots of liberties with the, the things that we set up for yeah. ourselves, really. There's a big sequence here which is missing, which is in the deleted scenes, which is they go through a railway train that has been turned into a temporary hospital, we, we we cut it eventually because um, it poured down that day, absolutely poured down, and we couldn't film it in any way that disguised the fact that it wasn't raining. It's important to the plot that it doesn't rain in London for quite a long time, as you'll see later. Um, so this is... Uh, but we got permission from Docklands Light Railway to let us walk on the railway, which is very unusual in Britain to get that kind of permission. Very grateful to them for that. And this is his uh, parents' home with a nice Volvo, which is a... Insisted upon by Anthony Dodmantle, the cameraman, the Scandinavian, the guy who lives in Denmark, our cameraman. Any product placement car-wise has to be a Volvo with him. I don't know whether he has some deal with Volvo or perhaps he'll let us know about that. But um, And this is, uh, yeah, so this is his family home, which we wanted to feel like it was the kind of ideal family home, really. Comfortable and warm and, you know, a place that you would want to even as an adult, always return to as, a, as part of your childhood or something, the feeling of going back there. So hence, it's kind of lit to be yellow and the feeling of warmth and, you know, the way you remember your childhood, really, I suppose. So the music here is um, Abide With Me, which is a which just stopped, actually, even as I say that, but um, it starts up again in a minute. Um, we wanted to give, again, some way with the music that you thought about the history or the culture of the past in Britain, really, what had gone. We thought these haunting songs, uh, these hymns, would be a nice way of doing it. And John Murphy, who did the music for us, got this girl he knows, this singer in Liverpool, to sing them for us, who gave us these very beautiful renditions of that and Ave Maria later. The prosthetics, those two bodies are prosthetics, which are just dazzling. The prosthetic guys are what they're capable of now. 
is incredible, really. The very unnerving things to be with when you're in the same room as them. They're so real. This was something we invented later. Yeah. In, this wasn't in the original script, and Alex wrote this when uh, we inserted it. We wanted to kind of connect with him more emotionally at that point to feel his loss more, really, uh, so that you're more uh, moved by him, really. Um, uh, it's something I feel that you learn as a filmmaker is that you not to be frightened sometimes of being emotional. You know, you, you have a tendency sometimes to be quite cold or cool. You're scared of being sentimental, but there's also a danger that you don't give people that kind of um, the emotional trip they sometimes want, really, with a, especially with a story like this. And uh, and Killian was playing it uh, quite quite blank in a way, which uh, it, it is a strength, but... Um, uh, there just needed to be something just to give it a little point of uh, contact, really, with the audience, so that they were in his head in some way. I love the way this scene is shot. It's always a problem with... Um, this is a huge dialogue scene with, again, a vast amount of information in it about the past. And it's static, people in a room, and you've always got that thing, what do you do then? Do you track round all that? And we just gave this impression of these faces just being crushed into the screen, um, just so that you went right inside the people's minds, really, uh, about what has happened, you know, the scars that are on their, on their brains because of what's happened in, the, in those 28 days, yeah. So, and performed very well by Noah and... Naomi as well. Before things begin to really move on. Selena being tough and uh, pragmatic um, and there was a kind of idea uh, that we had that if uh, Selena uh, had met um, the character played by Christopher Eccleston who appears later in the film if they'd met each other at this point in a way they'd be quite compatible because they're, they're both these uh, uh, pragmatists who um, don't really give uh, emotion and uh, humanity much leeway in their pragmatism um, and uh, you know traditional storytelling terms she's got a character arc that by the time they do meet those two characters they're in a different place the the we wanted by this time we wanted to make it feel like uh, although there's a hint at the end of that scene there that selena is not uh, sleeping with Mark, we wanted to give the impression that they were a couple, an indispensable couple, if you like, so that there was, you felt like you were going to go forward with three people now, and they were all indispensable. And that was one of the reasons so that Mark, who is shortly to die, I hope I'm not spoiling it for you, anybody, <laughs> um, has such a long speech because we wanted to make you feel totally attached to him because of what's going to happen in a moment. Um, and obviously... Sorry, I was just going to say, I think this is one of the the most successful sequences in the film, in a way. It, it just all seems to work so uh, so perfectly, this um, flashback, which I always think flashbacks are 
are, are very difficult, but I, it, it, it felt so right here. And you shot it on what? This is shot on Super 8, Super 8. Uh, to give it a kind of very different quality, really. Got to be very careful about trying to use technical terms. <laughs> <laughs> but we wanted to kind of put him in that world as well. It wasn't just, you know, he's literally there as well in his pyjamas. And then, of course, you get some scary... But so that's my back, my back garden at home. There, very quick... But, well, and there's my back garden, and there's my door. And, <laughs> and then he, the first time he came in through the window, that guy, he tripped and fell, which is pretty funny. When he came, we had three balsa wood doors for him to come through. Bit of gratuitous violence there for everybody. Yeah, uh, but... Or not gratuitous. Sort of... Um, uh, it says something about the the stakes this sequence that it it makes the audience feel um, that this won't be entirely comfortable. Yeah, viewing. yeah. If they haven't felt that already, and yeah. uh, uh, I think yeah. probably quite a few won't have felt that already until this scene. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, we had a tootsie moment earlier, and this is a bit of psycho, I suppose, where you get rid of someone who uh, you think or hopefully think is going to be a key player. Going to be the next yeah. minute they're gone. See, look, it's the shower scene, isn't it? There's a longer version of that, which is pretty unwatchable, I have to tell you. Um, again, the prosthetic guys can just do anything now. It is very scary. They can almost do anything and convince you somebody's arm is being chopped off. There's a lot of blood around, and there's a kind of madness around as well, because she says, did any of it get in your mouth? And it's a warning about how infectious it is. And yet there's a kind of abandonment on her part in terms of... You know, she doesn't try and shield herself from blood the whole time. And I always thought she had that kind of... That had been a decision she'd come to. If she got... If it happened to her, it happened to her. But she she wasn't going to... The only way that she could protect her life was being as um, extreme as possible in the way that she dealt with threat. She wasn't going to be inhibited by fear of infection itself. You know, so... This is the Docklands. Uh, again, we did a lot of filming down here because they're very friendly, or they were, before September 11th. Um, and um, it's possible at the weekends to make it feel deserted. And also it gives a sense of a different kind of London, a kind of slightly more um, plastic, modern London, rather than the, some of the tr more traditional stuff you saw at the beginning of the film. We didn't stop the clocks. They are stopped the clocks. Don't know why, but they are. That was a useful, cheap addition to the film. Bit of paper drifting through shot is always a good way of yeah. suggesting desolation, apocalypse. It's very cheap as well. <laughs> this is one of the scenes that uh, was part of the casting process, wasn't it? The, yeah. It was uh, Selena's fall in love and fuck lines. Yeah. Let's go. There's a bit of Danny's writing coming up here. Did we keep that ADR line as they're climbing over the shopping trolleys about hope we, what was it? What's what? It's not hope we don't have to get out of here. What is it about supermarkets and shopping trolleys or something like that? What is it about tower blocks and shopping trolleys? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there you go. Um, uh, this is a, this is a, 
Here he comes, here comes the... He's about to come now. Don't know why I chose that one to highlight. You've got lots of lines in here. <laughs> I just always remember that one. It's a brilliant line. She just wants to get on with it. Um, this is a tower block which has since been pulled down. Right in the central London, actually, this was, or just, just south of the river. And when we got there, there were people. There was just a security guard, but he was letting about a dozen people sleep on the ground floor of it. Obviously charging them rent as well before they pulled it down. That was right, right, a bit of an amazing little moment, a glimpse into inner London life there. Why didn't you say something before? Well, because I didn't think you'd give a shit. You've got no fat on you, and all you've had to eat is sugar. So you're crushing. Unfortunately, there isn't a lot we can do about that. So pump me full of painkillers and give you more sugar. As for sugar... I think we spent hours with this scene once, trying to figure out a way of her saying that she was a chemist. Yeah. <laughs> do you remember? That's right. She says it later, doesn't she? There's a bit, there's a few hints there that she knows what she's talking about, though. Yeah. Although I think you can pick all that stuff up from Elle magazine and, and a prima donna, can't you, or whatever it's called these days. This is pretty exhausting. Running up and down these stairs, I think this is the most knackered they ever got. Um, especially Naomi, who had to carry this battery pack up to power that lamp. There was a kind of 50-pound battery pack in her, in her backpack, and... Um, but she had to keep running up, up and down stairs, of course, while the endless filming goes on. Martin Amis once said that filming is a series of delays interrupted by repetitions. And it's very, very... I think it's the truest thing that's ever been said about it. As a stranger watching a film being made, that's just what it looks like. She could not understand why we wanted to do it again and again and again. This is the first sight of this merciless butcher, who's the wonderful man, Brendan Gleeson, who wanted, he really wanted it to feel um, mercilessly, you know, how, how he dealt with them. And then when you get to actually meet him, he's the most gentle, amiable man, or appears to be. Um, and is the next father figure, really, that Killian comes to kind of depend on, really. I think that's Frosty the Snowman you can hear in the background there on the music. That's the most expensive bit of music in the whole film. It's cost some phenomenal amount of money to pay for that. Really bizarre the way these things trip you up. Later on you suddenly find out something's hugely expensive. And suddenly there's just this big injection of warmth into the film as soon as Brendan Gleeson appears. Big smiling guy. With his daughter, played by Megan, Megan Burns, his lovely shy daughter. So they're a real already. The, you get this feeling there's an oddball foursome, <laughs> bit of an odd mixture of characters, really. And, um, and they're going to be together for a bit of a while. 
If you want to see Brendan in someone else, he did an amazing film called The General, uh, John Borman film, where he plays Martin Cahill. If you want to see that for a performance, fantastic performance by an actor. This is this is this is is a tower block, and we were. This is where we were filming when uh, during September the 11th. So it was very bizarre doing a scene with green creme de month and, and salutations and on on the day when the kind of world was turning around, really. Um, but you just kind of carry on, really. You'd never know, would you? Look at them. That's actors for you. You know. The world was turned upside down, but you kind of get on and do the script, really. So this is life without water, really. The realities of life without water. We did have a long sequence in here, which I don't think has made it into the deleted scenes, because it's just bits, really, where he actually cut all his hair off and and shaved his beard, which um, were real at the time. And, of course, it being a film, we had to go back later and make a wig for him because we had to pick up some stuff that was shot before we cut his hair. And Sally, our makeup designer, did a great job to coordinate all that. But we were able to film almost sequentially. Those accepted, those moments accepted, where we had to go back for occasional things. Basically, everything was done in sequence, which is a very unusual for a film. And I think it's because of the nature of the story that we were able to structure it like that, and schedule it like that. And Bob, our production manager, and Richard Styles, our first, kind of scheduled it like that so that it gave the actors the opportunity. It's great for, for actors. Ken Loach does that religiously on all his films, and it is one of the reasons, I think, that, well, he's a brilliant director, but he also... One of the reasons he gets brilliant performances out of amateurs, people have never done it before, is they, is they can work sequentially so that they know where they are each day. Um, the fish have got the last of the water. Now he reappears as Johnny Depp, very handsome. <laughs> So this scene we did shoot in two bits. There's a kind of moral moment here that Alex wrote in later between them, where he this bit now, these close-ups, where he's basically saying, I think they're decent people and I would wait around for them. And she would she says, You'll get yourself killed. And he won't back down on it really. And he you know, he's kind of he's kind of growing a bit really and finding it. He's been lost really. He's, no surprise waking up like that and he's kind of just finding a sense of himself and sort of standing up for himself in it and it was a uh, it was a setup for one of our potential endings where uh, she says if you think like that you'll get yourself killed and in one of our endings um, that's exactly what happened <laughs> yeah we'll come on to those we've got to we've got all oh, those sorry, to, all those different blown. variations no 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 we've got all those variations of those to talk about um, That's back to the old scene, isn't it? Yeah. Seamless. No, look. Well, that's the old scene and that's the new scene. I mean, thank you. And I mean, so. Good night, Jim.
So then we've got this scene on the rooftop where there's these buckets. And when they turned up on the morning, there were only like 100 buckets and it looked like three on the rooftop. And it was I don't often kind of get very insistent about things, but I insisted on a 1,000 buckets being got by the afternoon. And, of course, it's... Uh, that's why some of the buckets are a bit dodgy for collecting water. There's like a laundry basket or something with huge holes in it, which wouldn't be very useful, but you have to forgive the art department. They did, re- they did manage to get a 1,000 buckets in a couple of hours ready to shoot the scene, um, which is a wonderful idea for a scene, I think, too. And that was why I was referring earlier, why it was important that it hadn't rained yet for this scene. Jim, we're not going to be able to stay here. I think uh, on the, uh, the bad writing front, the scene has some of the worst, probably the worst in the whole film. And uh, every time I see Megan, who plays Hannah, um, uh, doing her lines here, I feel a terrific surge of guilt for having given her these impossible lines to say that come straight out of um, the worst kind of TV drama, really. Um, as opposed to good TV drama, there's lots of that, but um, there's also bad TV drama, and some of this would be right at home there, I think. It's really towards the end of the scene where it begins to collapse. It was it was originally set inside the house, this, but because we were shooting sequentially, we were really bored by then, by the inside of the house, and we just thought, let's put it out on the balcony. And um, there was this storm coming as it happens, and we didn't want it to rain, obviously, because of what I've said, so we had to shoot it very quickly to uh, before it before it started pouring rain, and we would have been forced inside then, in some way. We'd have to invent a reason to go inside. Something might happen to me. Hannah Violana couldn't risk it. With other people. If it's a recording, for all we know, the soldiers who made it are dead. But they are, be- they are beginning to kind of bicker and bind together as, a, as, a, as a, a unit, really, in a way, before they know it. Because they don't really have a choice. They've got to sort of stick together, really, or they're going to. They're sort of being stuck together without them knowing it, really. And this is the second hymn that's used in here, very craftily snuck in by Murphy. The, um, this is Ave Maria, um, which actually is a steal, really, from uh, the end of Fantasia, which I don't know if you've ever seen that. You should watch that as well, that, the end of sequence of that. Have you ever seen that, the end of sequence no, of Fantasia? No, you keep telling me to watch oh, that. Um, absolutely unbelievable, visually. It's incredible well, it's sequence. It's Christmas. I think it's a good time to see it. No, I meant as a present. <laughs> There's lots of taxi driver cab jokes. Um, in fact, I think I gave you a book, didn't I, of taxi driver cab jokes. <laughs> that wasn't in it, that was one of his own. Yeah, there was a line where he said, uh, I won't go south of the river. Oh, yeah. Um, that was the one we should have kept. But, yeah. of course, they were south of the river, so it didn't yeah. work. This was filmed actually in Croydon, that was filmed, and then this is back to the Blackwall Tunnel which is um, uh, one of the main routes under the river in London. And we were very lucky to get... Uh, the actual tunnel itself is not one of the real tunnels. It's a disused, or it was an unopened, it's since been opened, an unopened section of tunnel. 
uh, in Limehouse and uh, the lime, part of the Limehouse link. And we were very lucky to get that because this kind of thing is impossible to do without a, a real location. Um, and again, Tilsley in the art department did a brilliant job piling up these cars. And again, we got this idea of where are all the cars then? There'd be so many cars around. And so we thought well, we'll put them all here as though there's been some huge pile up, some massacre or some terrible tragedy has happened in here that's blocked the tunnel or, or people have created a barricade to try and keep things out. And of course, then when you have that idea, you think, well, we drive the taxi over it, which is impossible, of course. There has to be a special rig built to actually get it to drive across. And it's cut very cleverly by Chris Gill to make it feel like it lasts a long time. You know, like it's a real journey over it, like that. It was a hell of a place to film that as well. I remember the exhaust fumes just filling up the whole tunnel, everyone yeah. wearing masks and feeling their brain cells evaporating yeah. at every minute yeah. they stayed in there. So this is such a cliche, isn't it? <laughs> Getting a flat tire in a tunnel, in a horror movie or a zombie movie or whatever you want yeah. to call it. Such a cliche. But you must never be frightened of cliches sometimes because they're very enjoyable. That's why they are cliches. Open arms, I say. We had two... I mean, given the, uh, the kind of film this is, there were, there's a moment um, which is... Uh, people walking into cellars holding only a sputtering candle. And yeah. This is a bit like that, I suppose. The, the wide shots of the rats are done brilliantly by the, the, the digital effects house, Clear. Did us a fantastic job there on those, and they're intercut with closer shots of rats. We actually did get complaints from a magazine called Rodan to Marsupial Quarterly about the stereotypical portrayal of rats. And they're actually, they're very friendly creatures, and why do we keep portraying them as horrible things? <laughs> Fair's enough. They are very nice. But they wouldn't run, the real ones. They wouldn't well. run. They're too, too they're too nice. They wouldn't run for us and look scary, so... to get away of course there you go <laughs> yeah um, you can see the fumes in, chugging out the back of that yeah. cab so that took that took two days that whole sequence in a tunnel this is Tottenham Court Road and we're very fortunate Budgeons um, were very keen to give us uh, especially the manager of this particular branch he was a big film fan and he agreed if we signed some posters for him. He's a big fan of train spotting. He would let us use the store too. <laughs> and we filmed through the night in it. And we did this very interesting thing, which is that we didn't light it. It's actually self-lit by overhead neons. And what we decided to do is that the only way that we could do it in the time to get the scene shot was to actually remove, avoid the neon lights as much as possible. And then in shots like that, the clear, the digital house, would paint them out, the neon lights. So they're actually self-lit by the, the lights in the supermarket store. So we didn't have to do any lighting. 
but they just took it all out in post and we tried to avoid it as much as possible. That was a little Homer Simpson uh, yeah. homage there. And uh, in a way, the, um, the whole scene is, uh, is a respectful nod towards um, George Romero's Dawn of the Dead set in a shopping mall, which is uh, one of the great bits of uh, post-apocalyptic wish fulfillment that you hold yourself up in this consumerist fortress. And um, this, is, this is just a little tiny uh, nod towards that. One of two big Romero nods in the film, and this is the first, really. I mean, other people would say the whole thing's a nod towards Romero, but maybe it is. But, the, but consciously, there were two very specific ones, and this was the first. There's an American band on the, um, on the soundtrack, Granddaddy. Fantastic band from America. And I love that ending to the scene, the little, the, the plastic. Um, Redundant plastic. Yeah, again. More shopping trolleys. And this was the first shot we ever shot, actually. This is, Andrew and I did this on our own in, um, in uh, Cambridgeshire. Um, we went up and shot some flowers because we had this idea of the flowers had just sort of almost gone, they'd not been cut because they'd just blossomed and almost waned and died almost on their own. And then we turned it into to look like a bit of a Van Gogh, really. And it's one of those mad moments people say, well, you should cut that, it's ridiculous, what does it mean? And then other people go, oh, no, I love that, and you can't really explain it, and I love things like that. I think you sometimes should go with things that aren't necessarily rational or explicable, really, in a way. Well, we do that the whole time, I suppose, really. Yeah. You live in the kind of... The film sort of lives in its own world, really, sometimes, which is a very healthy place for it to be sometimes. I sometimes think uh, this sequence is one uh, that we might have found harder to do if we'd um, been making the film for more money and um, uh, that it required a larger... Uh, audience in a way because um, our protagonist um, kills a kid with a baseball bat yeah. um, and uh, I remember writing this wondering whether we were going too far at this point um, uh, but actually it, it, it works out fine really it, it, it's not as it, it's easier to accept that this guy has done that than, than you'd think um, uh, a hero killing a, a child is um, it, it goes against um, what one would expect one could get away with but but actually it, it feels quite comfortable just like yeah well of course he's going to kill the kid what else is he going to do yeah now that finger is yeah. that is that a nod or a reference <laughs> no it was just there I know it looks like um, Nightmare on Elm Street doesn't it or something but like that it is a finger isn't it yeah it is yeah as a coat hook, yeah, that's a, that's from when Saddam Hussein gassed those people in Kurds, yeah. the Kurds. That's a kind of reference to that. And the kid here is played by um, a, a very good friend of my my kids, Grace and uh, Gabriel and Caitlin. Um, he's called uh, Justin Hackney, and he's incredibly acrobatic. And uh, hello does a great job here of doing this uh, getting whacked with a baseball bat
we put all these in on the soundtrack. We put all these in the in. Whenever you see the the, you you probably heard him saying. You can hear it a bit, probably a bit too clearly there. I hate you. We put all these kind of this rolling kind of incessant vocabulary of the infected kind of screaming at people like like rage and we put that on them the whole time and most of the time it's not decipherable really what it is apart from I suppose an attitude um, there were lots of gags that we had in about her being a Ayrton uh, Senna's kid yeah a racing driver's daughter Out. chucking the two and a half ton cab around um, Danny wanted it to be Michael Schumacher's daughter, but because he's a big uh, Formula One fan who insists that Schumacher was a much better driver than Senna ever was. Well, I think, yeah, I'm afraid so. <laughs> this was, we sent Andrew uh, McDonald, the producer, was sent off to Cornwall to get that shot. I, I read somewhere that uh, they said, oh, that, that's a CG. Hang on, what is it? CG or CGI? What do you call it? You can call it either, right, yeah. CG shot those windmills were dropped in but they weren't that's no they're, they're real there. the the second one is dropped in the, the one where it's very close up that's created oh, but right. the okay, maybe that's what they're talking the about. other one is actually we sent them to Cornwall for them and again it was a, a lovely idea that ironically something kept going that there's no use for anymore in a way um, this is an abbey we had to shoot this within the M25 or just beyond the M25 because of financial reasons with your crew and things like that and the um the location manager, uh, Alex Gladstone, phoned this for us, which I'd never seen before. It was a fantastic... When you get a good crew working, people add things to the script in a way. And he brought this idea up of somewhere with them for stop for a picnic. And, of course, I loved the idea of the past, really, again, that they were surrounded by something very, very old and, and obviously the horses, very beautiful. But, um, but one area that almost looked like... Um, it had been destroyed before in a previous generation, you know, a previous civilization had kind of collapsed, really, in a way. Well, that was, it looks like that um, Max Ernst painting called After the Rain, Après le Deluge, which is, or the next scene does when they're walking around. It's got all, and it, that was done after the war, you know, to suggest the ruin in Europe. Anyway, it's, hmm. that was the idea of it. But that's what happens when people get involved in the script and run out of space. Oh, no. <laughs> And in this scene, it, it's really our first attempt, having laid a little bit of groundwork to try and create uh, a relationship, a spark between the two of them. Um, I probably uh, went over this scene in a way more than any other because this was the scene that we uh, were using in casting at the two of them. And so we heard this scene again and again and again with lots of different uh, actors and after all of that, for a while, we, we dropped it out of the the film. Um, this was cut for a while, this scene. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? came back again, but yeah. because something needed to happen where the two of them just got closer in the, uh, in the sort of boy meets girl way of things. And it's just something... In a way, it's more to do with Selena than it is to do with Jim. It's part of her moving away from this uh, machine-like um, take on the world. Uh, and it's as much to do with her noticing uh, Hannah and Frank messing around on the cab that then comes back later. 
Um, yeah, she sort of. Lo I love this look she gives here, like that there. Really great. Um, so this is uh, this is the Valium scene. This was at one point. This was going to be a much harder drugs. It was going to be class A yeah, drugs at one point. Danny and his train spotting history, wanting them shooting up. And... <laughs> because I thought, well, if it was twenty eight days later, and and she was a kind of chemist, and you had access to all that, that you could use stuff like that. But it was too extreme, really, and it moved the film into a different, a different world, really. But if you wanted kind of pain relief or kind of to be able to create. Yeah, Valium works for pain relief, yeah. I find. Absence in your brain, then. This is how they do it in this, yeah. Must have needed a hell of a prescription for that lot. I didn't need a prescription. I qualified as a chemist. And actually, it, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a dad moment. Um, yeah. Really, it's, it's, uh, it's Jim having decided now that Frank is his surrogate dad and he, he talks to him like he's a kid and yeah. uh, he's he's the brother of uh, his younger sister Hannah here in a way. Yeah. Um, and sort of saying, uh, treating the Valium like it's chocolate cakes. So yeah. Well, come on, you know, yeah. let her have a bit. Yeah, it's sort of family. A family. The idea of family in it is very, is very important throughout it all, really, I think. And soon he'll actually, he'll call him dad. Subtly, blink and you miss it, but um, but he there. does, yeah. Night night. A big softy, Frank. That's probably and this is like their their rest, really. But um, inside it, of course, because that's probably like the the most relaxed they'll ever be. Inside it, of course, is a slight poison, really, which is. Which is this? His paranoia, really. That he thinks, obviously, because the scar of being left alone at the at the beginning of the film has left its mark, really. And his worst nightmare is that he's been left alone again, is that they've gone and left him. It's more of Andrew's camera work. There's a bit of Andrew scaring some sheep, and I can't guarantee that he didn't harm the sheep in that particular shot, everybody. I think he just shouted at them, but I can't guarantee it <laughs> to make them run away from him. Uh, no, he just did it. They actually did it with some dogs and some sheep dogs, and then they took them out later. Here's the bit that Alex was referring to, where he just wants a dad, really. But he can't really. He's got to. Um, the idea of it was that he's got to take. I mean, eventually he finds another father figure who's a much more patrician figure. Um, played by Chris Eccleston later, but he has to kind of do that work himself, really, in the end. You know, um, he can't keep relying on the father figure. One of the questions that I keep getting asked about this is why it takes them two days to uh, drive up to just north of Manchester, um, and Danny has the answer to that. <laughs> do I? Yes, don't what, you? What I don't. No. <laughs> why does it take them two days to drive up to Manchester? It just does, you know. It, it's just, uh, we sort of thought, well... They should spend the night somewhere, and, and yeah, so they that's do. Right, yeah. I mean, yeah. it, it, you can get obsessed about. I mean, as uh, anyone can tell, I suppose we're quite cavalier yeah. about that kind of thing. If we sort of think, well, let's make it take two days, yeah. then that's sort of what happens. Yeah. It's actually uh, just one of my favourite uh, moments here, which is um, uh, 
Jim putting his hand out the window. Uh, something I always used to do when I was a kid. I still do it, actually. Um, treating your hand like an aerofoil and yeah, long journeys. Um, motorway, you know, going on a holiday with the family and dad sort of saying, stick your hand back in or it'll get ripped off. Yeah, usually. This is, this, is, this is the M1, which is the busiest motorway in Britain. And uh, we were unbelievably fortunate that we contacted these police men and they were very keen to help us do it and they created what they call a rolling block in both directions where they drive in front of traffic coming in both directions very slowly and create this kind of corridor this diminishing corridor uh, where there appears to be no traffic it's just being held back by them you know driving at 10 miles an hour so the stuff in front of them clears and then they're bringing up so you have we had about seven or eight minutes where we could shoot and again we used lots of cameras like I'm on a camera there inside the cab on that particular shot and Anthony's kind of following this cab in another cab, um, and Andrew's up on a crane, I think, getting a wide shot. And um, so you can give, and it's it's this is actually picked up later. We did this somewhere else later, but it does affect the actors to see something for real rather than just paint it all out afterwards. It does kind of you do see it affect them. They think they start to they it helps them into the world of it. This was very tricky. This because how do you show it? city burning from a huge distance and still make it look dramatic still justify the long uh pan yeah <laughs> tilt long tilt actually tilt. love fuck it tilt. <laughs> long tilt the long tracking shot upwards yeah yeah so um that's Manchester burning, and that's my uh, hometown, Manchester, so what better town to burn than your hometown? And Alex actually went to university there, mm. so there's a common thread there. Um, this was the most amazing set. This was, yeah, this is our roadblock, which we did on a, uh, on a, a, a test drive track where they test out car tyres and things like that and braking distances and stuff like that. And you, and you often see those, those shows on televisions where they're kind of testing different cars from, those Jeremy Clarkson-type shows. This is where they're all filmed. And uh, Tilsley, our designer, did a brilliant job creating with very little this uh, sense of a blockade which has been abandoned. It, you could, you could w look at it from any angle. That, there was never anything... Uh, it, it never felt like now you've walked behind it and you're seeing all the scaffold that's holding it up. It yeah. was a completely contained 3D uh, world. Yeah, it was, and walking around it, you'd you'd suddenly feel as if you were walking into the film as you walked past some burned-up corpse or upturned car. Yeah. So again, the images that we always tried to use was that things have been abandoned, sort of just. I mean, it's that Marie Celeste image, isn't it? Which is so evocative that things have just been left just abandoned rather than again seeing corpses everywhere or, I mean we have to have corpses at certain points like we do later in this sequence where you have to have them but um, it was more a feeling of just kind of desolation really because they always say hell is other hell is other people but actually of course the, the premise of this is that hell is no other people really that you're truly when you're truly truly alone it's a terrible terrible thing um 
love this is one of my favourite moments in the whole film really mm. I guess is where he just snaps at them and, and he is dad and he's <laughs> such a tall dad <laughs> Brendan and and I just think his his performance here of snapping at them and then he walks away and regrets it you know and he thinks why did I do that you know why at a moment like, and they also did very well because it's a wonderful moment of them being totally kind of three told off children <laughs> you know Dad's in a bad, bad mood and he's got a big, heavy lead pipe in his hand. Um, but his, his regret then, and of course what happens, ironically, to him, is sad. And, but he gets a chance to apologise to her, which I love as well, the fact that he apologises for what he'd just done. But he knows he's going to die, and, but he gets a chance to actually say something, something that his daughter can remember him by really this this death as well this came quite late in the day because for a long time it was dogs um uh but dogs really screwed around with uh, a few things one was that they were very expensive to use but also uh, if they were infected dogs then the, everything all animals would be infected whereas one of our the many rules that we ignored was that it was primates it's a fantastic shot so other uh emotional second emotional point in the film really yeah this is i i loved i loved the fact how emotional this scene was that it you know in in something that you could call a zombie film or a horror film that you did get the chance to actually emotionally really grieve for these people and and get put on the spot about what is going to happen now uh not just in terms of violence or you know who's going to get killed but actually just emotionally in terms of how they're going to say goodbye to each other and what's happening here anyway and people trying to work out what's going on and then having to do something about it. Um, it might be a, a measure of uh, me and Danny being a bit sad, I don't know, but there was one rehearsal. Do you remember this? Uh, they were rehearsing yeah. this scene um, uh, a couple of months before filming it, I suppose, and uh, we got choked up. That was yeah, pathetic it was very, in a way, but it yeah. happened. You know? yeah. I shouldn't say that. Cut that. <laughs> That point where the soldiers shoot him is actually an end point where a different version of the film, which we hope to be able to show you on the on the extras storyboarded, kicks in before the soldiers shoot him. Um, but I won't say any more about that now. We'll, uh, you, hopefully that'll appear on the DVD extras. Those costumes that the soldiers were wearing are actually, they're done by Rachel Fleming, our costume designer. I remember when she first showed me them, I thought, oh, wow, these are way too extreme. We won't get away with this because they they're totally in total bio gear, you know, to protect themselves. But actually, of course, she was right. On, when you get the energy of the scene up and they actually come into the scene, it's exactly that kind of alien thing that you want. You know, their first sight of other survivors is, is almost like they come from a different planet, you know, to begin with, before you, they begin to kind of get to know them as they do here. This is uh, our really big continuity error coming. Oh, yeah, you mean Marvin there yeah. on the right. That's Marvin there, who <laughs> you'll see later appearing as the chained-up mailer uh, already infected. That's because we changed cast kind of after we'd shot that film and promoted Marvin into, um, into the part of mailer. And we had to keep that material, and we hoped people wouldn't notice because you hadn't met mailer yet. And your focus, your eyes, really taken by the introduction of this character, Chris Eccleston, really, who's one of my personal favourite actors. Worked with him a number of times, and um, uh, 
Chris always been something extraordinary to uh, parts that he plays. Um, and this is the next father figure, really, for Killian to put his faith in, really. And this is a much more authoritarian uh, figure, obviously, because he's got the might of the British Army or a, uh, a section of the British Army with him to protect them, you know, and invites them into the into the um, British country house, you know, and you wouldn't it wouldn't be a British film without a country house in it, would it? So. sort of trying to uh, set up different characters there with the soldiers with Jones yeah. standing there forlornly with his shopping bags this was moved around this actually uh, in one cut of the film in fact that uh, originally it was a lot further back and it was brought forward this whole scene it used to appear much later in the film um, and uh, it, w it was interesting for me uh, watching this editing process and seeing just exactly how much one can change the thread of the story in the edit suite. And they weren't in the same room? They weren't, in fact. They were these, they were in, when we put them in the same room together, we kind of, as you, as you often do, you concertina things that you keep separate. It's often better to, especially once the film... Is, is moving on into its second or third stage that you you, you you need to concertina things rather than lay them out too leisurely, really. So you start to crush things together because the audience is kind of up to speed on, and, and can take kind of those shorthand ways of, kind of crushing things together. 20 drafts before Danny could persuade me to have a kiss <laughs> between them. So here's your kind of British country house scene, you know, and ironically, of course, it's all filled with barbed wire and floodlights and barricades and stuff like that, but it's still the, the Jane Austen country house. Um, originally, we wanted it to be a very feminine Queen Anne-type house, which this, this, it, this, is, this house was actually built for uh, Lord Nelson, although he never got to live in it because he got killed, obviously, at Trafalgar, and... Um, I think his brother took it on instead, but it was built for him, I think, by the state, by the country. You know, it was given to him, and he's buried in the grounds down the road. Um, but we wanted it to feel, like, slightly feminine because of the kind of gender stuff that all comes up, starts to come up in the film from now on. We wanted it to feel a slightly feminine place, really. That's Eccleston ruffling his hair, which is just picking up. I mean, that, that's just him doing that. And, yeah. Uh, but it, it really reinforces the... The father thing. Yeah. You wouldn't want to mow the lawn, but if they get in, we hear them. More exposition. Secondary to protection, our real job is to rebuild. Feels a bit more natural here, I think. And this was another shot that Danny set up so that we could change dialogue, put more in an ADR, and uh, add to what wasn't there in the script when we were shooting it. It's very difficult setting up. These are fantastic actors, all these guys, really impressed with them. The problem is that in a film, it's very difficult to differentiate them. You tend to, you, you tend to caricature them slightly so that you can, you know, so we put, it, we put Leo in a, in, a, in a penny and 
stuff like that, so that you've got a code that the audience can cling to to separate them. The guy you don't need to, you don't have any worry about here, is Mela, who you know straight away. You'll always remember throughout the film. This is this this scene changed and changed and changed in what was said, and I, I have to admit, for me, I always felt it should be more. There should be more. It should be more theoretical about the kind of the pulse that lay the I suppose an intellectual pulse that lays be, behind the idea of the film and rage and our our responsibility for rage and that kind of psychological sickness we have with each other. But we ended up. Um, it was always felt plonky. That's the danger of that. And we ended up with a much more, much more matter of fact, um, a much more matter of fact scene, I suppose, really, in a way, mm. which is about the progression of the narrative. And in some way, he's experimenting on this guy to see how long it'll take him to starve to death. And for what it's worth, um, this is the second very conscious uh, nod towards Romero. Uh, with uh, the third in the trilogy, the first nod was towards the second of his dead trilogy. This is in the third with uh, Bubba, the chained-up, uh, infected in the underground compound of uh, Day of the Dead. Um, always a, a character, an idea that uh, seemed very strong. I never know with that kind of thing if it's if it's theft or or what, but um, it's there anyway. It's not if you acknowledge it. I don't think. All right, there. <laughs> Quick, I'm you get away with it. You sort of hope that people who know those films will, will get that. Just while on the subject of uh, other films, th this, uh, I was uh, personally thinking a lot about the cutscene in Apocalypse Now, um, this uh, dinner party, surreal dinner party on a plantation, French... Uh, sort of Indochina plantation and um, uh, ever since watching Heart, Heart of Darkness or Hearts of Darkness the documentary of the making of I always I, I hadn't really seen the, the scene properly until Apocalypse Now Redux but um, I just loved the idea of a surreal dinner party having a dinner party here with soldiers in dress uniform and um, uh, trying to maintain cling on to some notion of civilization um, and this and this Italian fresco behind them and right. yeah and eating it was a much longer scene as well um, uh, this got messed around a lot so obviously there's something slightly problematic about surreal dinner party scenes <laughs> I love the way Chris does the bad omelette acting <laughs> um. <laughs> These film, these scenes are always a nightmare for when you film them. Dinner party scenes because it's all about left to right, right to left. Who's he looking at when he's looking that way? And what position? And going and you end up basically. The truth is, no matter who you are, you end up going round the table shooting everybody, and you double up sometimes because you you want to make sure the editor's got enough in editing where he, where the editor can control the pace of the scene and shape it a bit, you know. Um, um, but it's basically pretty bog standard you know you just have to get there and cover it as any director will tell you about dinner party scenes and, and it's an acting scene as well really you want to you don't want to the danger because you have to repeat it so much is that the actors get bored with it or they lose their freshness with it but Eccleston's uh, fantastic at uh, keeping 
control of the scene and giving enough to other people so that when we do their shots, they've got enough to act with, but actually keeping enough back for his own takes, really, if you like. That's Stuart Macquarie, who was in... He's the American tourist in train spotting who was kicked and assaulted in the toilet in train spotting by Begbie. Um, he's a wonderful actor, and it was great to get him for this, to have this other presence, this different view, really, uh, which you get to hear a bit more of later. I think he's got the, the hardest lines in the film to say, uh, clunkiest written, and uh, I think he copes with them. Uh, extraordinarily well. But I like that because it sort of stops dead, really. You kind of like, woof, it's like big lead weights dropped on the table, really, sure. of something different. So I, I think that's good. But if you'd given it to another actor, it would have been a car wreck, I think. He's <laughs> one of the people you're talking about. I love this moment where Chris actually acknowledges her that she's right there. Yeah, before madness takes over again. There's the penny again, just so you know, little clues like that. Um, One of the problems is they're all in uniform, and uniforms are sort of designed to make, yeah. to remove characters, different characters. Yeah, that's right. And it's you very rarely remember character names anyway, beyond maybe the hero and the heroine or whatever. Sure. attack sequence there's me running across the foreground waving my arms trying to make up the numbers really we didn't quite have enough people <laughs> to do it with <laughs> and actually um, the numbers were uh, increased a bit by uh, the digital house clear again kind of doubling up people if you like um, cold night yeah This is the bounce. Oh yes, the double whammy. The uh, I don't know whether people ever get that. That he's because I I don't know whether they hear him say he bounced. Anyway, he does. I've never seen that before. So they come in. They're obviously fired up by that kind of slaughter, really. And the film, obviously, from then from then on, begins to take on a, a very different complexion in terms of uh, agendas are kind of on, on revealed, really, if you like. It's inevitable that they sort of start to come out at first jokingly like this, but then on a serious level as well. There's a good example coming up of what you can do in the ADR as well, with the uh, Chris Eccleston saying "slow down" yeah. to uh, yeah. to his men, which um, which says that he's complicit and understanding in what's happening, um, but not the way they're going about it just now. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a it's a line he says to um, Clifton. To Clifton, yeah, slow down, which is just added in ADR because he happened to be in shadow, but it works brilliantly for that. Um, and again, there's the standoff between those two, the two alternative authority figures, if you like, or the two world views. It was also meant to be linked to 
a special affection he had for that particular soldier. He's the guy he takes his hat off when he walks into the dining room scene. We eventually cut it. He had to kill that man himself. When you'll see it in the deleted scenes, and they play it beautifully together, the two of them. Uh, there was a kind of special bond between them, but for reasons I'll talk about later, we had to cut it. This is two actors playing beautifully together. Yeah. This, I think, is a cracking, cracking scene. And it was in jeopardy at one point. Yeah. Um, goes to show, really, that everything's up for grabs. Yeah. Um, but, but it's pivotal in terms yeah. of uh, plots, in terms of plot, and uh, it, it makes me surprised that we even discussed dropping it now, really. Yeah, I think you just go into a kind of... You, you challenge almost anything, really, in a way, and sometimes that's not a good thing, sometimes. But I guess sometimes it is. It, I loved it when Alex brought it in, and uh, and it obviously developed the idea of what had happened with a kid, with him killing the kid. It I actually that came out of an argument with... Uh, Chris Eccleston and Killian Murphy, um, where they were saying essentially that the scene that existed beforehand wasn't good enough, and they were right. And uh, I remember uh, we we wrote this um, uh, the day before it was shot. That night, I think, in the hotel room up in Salisbury. We fight off the infected, or we wait until they starve to death, and then what? It was reverting to an earlier scene, really. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but there was a, a scene that could have been shot here that would have been terrible, but uh, Chris Eccleston and Killian kind of mutinied yeah. correctly. And there's something, the way they play it, there's something almost homoerotic between them, this bond between them, really. Right there, yeah. You know, can Killian break that bond, really, which is being... Not least because he talks about sex in terms of procreation. Yeah. Rather than recreation. This is a very good hit. Killian takes a good hit here. Off. Does that very well. So this is Killian's last chance. This is his last chance to join, really. And this is like for all the things to be said or left unsaid between them. Okay, Jim. Okay. Him too. And then we move into the then we move into the cellar where you where you hear uh, the sergeant talking about the fact that there are that that it's not a worldwide contagion that it has been contained and that life normal so-called normal life is going on elsewhere and this was this was something that developed as we did the film really we came up with this idea of um, quarantine quarantine yeah and as a as a way of actually kind of what was great about it is that is that we set out, really, when we started it, to say it was a worldwide contagion. And, in fact, we were going to shoot some scenes at one point of it, of infection getting on a plane to America and things like that. And uh, So it was spreading worldwide across seas and oceans. And then, as we worked on the film, we decided to actually make it that Britain itself would be quarantined. And it gave hope that there might be some way out of this. And also, it's curiously appropriate, because we were making the film while 
foot and mouth had foot and mouth had very recently just kind of I think paralyzed this, Britain. Yeah, th- there was this concept of of Britain being diseased with BSE and foot and mouth, and uh, every time you turned around, there seemed it felt like there was something else, and and of course that also affects people within. England and Britain, it's not just how other people perceive you, it's how you perceive yourself. That was a hell of a bit of ADR because Stuart had to, I remember that day, because he had to time it yeah. so that when the camera came on to him, he was saying the right words. Yeah. That was a real bit of yeah. professionalism. Yeah. That's, a, that's a scene that was actually shot by a different cameraman because Anthony wasn't available to do our. Uh, pickups and we did that as a pickup later, a kind of sort of reshoot really. They were shot by this cameraman Alvin Kushler, who was very generous. He stepped in because Anthony wasn't available, and uh, and shot that and a number of other sequences that you'll see, uh, especially towards the end of the film. I love the way this looks, and this this was one of our another of our conscious references. They've been Rwanda and. And Bosnia, and this was this, and was this a, was Bosnia. This is a lot of the photographs that came out of uh, Bosnia, and uh, was bit, um, especially the the uh, the kind of grave area that they're taking them to. It's not really a grave; it's just a kind of open pit of bodies, really, that uh, have, have either died and been dumped there, or they've killed, they've shot, and uh, the idea was to invoke. Uh, some of those images that we got from photographs of Bosnia, everything that had happened in, in, in Central Europe in the last few years. And this was also a kind of uh, uh, write yourself into a corner scene where you've got a, your hero's just about to be shot and there's no real clear <laughs> sort of way that you can escape. You, you, uh, you just got to sit down and try and think of something. How can he get away? It's a good way of propelling a story is just write yourself into a complete corner and then just sit with it for a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Double bluff. And then this this sequence here came late in the day as well because this followed this, the decision about quarantine. Yeah. Really. And we, we talked a lot about where this plane could be. Do, do they see it out of a window in the house or is it is it just the noise of a plane? And, um, and uh, this just felt like the most natural. In fact, now it seems like the only place you could possibly put it. Really. Yeah. back garden again oh yeah that's shot yeah that's um i shot that in the back i i had um i just spent a few days looking for planes all the planes go overhead my house and i just shot them through the trees um, that's the one of the great things about dv cameras is that you can do a lot of 
you can improvise a lot of stuff and bring it in and uh, if you've uh, if you've done it well enough it'll it, you know you can use it in the film you don't have to have a whole film crew out doing stuff like that yes sir This was one of the most problematic scenes we had. I mean, this was the cause of uh, many, many, many arguments. N not necessarily between uh, me and Danny, but just general arguments about how far this scene goes. And uh, there's another cut of it. There's a way it can be cut where it's considerably more disturbing and harder to watch than it is now. And we, uh, we pulled back. We did. We, in fact, when we, we we had a screening, a very small screening, with a, a few people there, and a, and a couple of women walked out. As soon as the scene began, they just got up and walked out straight away, which is fair enough. Um, and we toned it down slightly. But actually, um, the scene, of course, once you get over that initial impact, is actually about... Empowerment. Yeah, and her empowerment, really, and her controlling the scene and, and winning the scene, really, in a way, and protecting the girl and herself ultimately. But only if you allow yourself yeah. to get to that point in the yeah. scene in a way, that was yeah. the thing, wasn't it? Come on, Les, let's leave the room. That's Clifton, who you're gonna, who did a great job. They were good, the guys. Um, He's a unbelievably gifted actor, that guy, isn't he? Yeah, very, very good. That's Sanjay just going through there. And this keeps the thread of the Valium going. Which I don't know whether people pick up on enough at the end of the film that she's off her head on Valium, the little girl, by the time that we get into the end sequence there. Um, uh, but anyway, that's, that's, that picks up that thread, keeps that going. And this is Jim lures them to the blockade, really. Uh, brings them to the blockade by creating this siren, which will bring hundreds of infected, unless, you know, it's quietened down. Because uh, if they respond to anything, they, the, the idea of the, uh, the infected is what kind of alerts them or what gets them going. It's sort of like, it was always, we always had this idea that it, might, it was the human voice kind of makes them, kind of sets them off into the killing fury, if you like, and uh, which is why he... Like when he kills that kid, he says hello. He sort of deliberately knows there's one of them in there, and he wants to confront it. And uh, you know, uh, the the use of the human voice in it is sort of what. But in this case, it was the siren, or the idea that the siren might bring them all there. Again, the effects guys did us a brilliant job here because rain is always, unless you've got a lot of money, rain is very difficult to make look cinematic because there are so many films especially american films where the rain is phenomenal you know and i was adamant that we wanted it to be really thick thick rain um uh, because the idea of the deluge and there'd be no rain and you know the whole idea of the ark and all that kind of stuff and the rains and and uh, you know so that it was a an absolute substantial 
you could feel it, you know, it's a visceral contribution to the film. That's an alien moment there. As soon as you look through the camera, you look at the shop, you think, that's alien. Harry Dean Stanton goes looking for the pussycat in Alien. Boof! Um, We use this technique in the camera to do with anything to do with the infected. We use this frame ratio thing, which I don't know quite how to explain it because it actually, when you use these cameras, we use this Canon XL1 and it has this frame setting, which suggests that it shoots not just at 24 frames a second, but it'll also shoot at 48 and up to 300, 1,000 frames a second, 16,000 frames a second. Now, it actually isn't doing that. It actually isn't, it, it, it isn't actually slowing the film down when you look back at it but it's capturing the images in a more kind of, almost in a more obviously static way. And when you run it, they appear slightly kind of jerky or they're slightly, they're not quite true in the way that you normally watch films in the cinema. And we used the technique whenever anybody was infected and we also used it obviously for these infected here, but most also for uh, Jim towards the end of the film when we wanted to give the impression to give the sense that he was infected and indeed he is infected with rage if you like with a kind of vengeance um, and we wanted to visually suggest that as well as uh, show it really say it so this is this begins the whole end sequence, really, of the chase around the house and Jim arriving back. The girls set up in their red dresses and as a kind of <laughs> as a kind of image of um, fecundity and um, in this beautiful house. This scene's an example of how you work with a cameraman. Like, I staged the scene. Like, I had them sat there and I said, I want them in front of that picture of a beautiful picture of the woman, the elegant woman, um, the portrait. And, you know, I wanted the soldiers here like that. And then Anthony said, right, what we'll do is we'll track. And he used this huge track, uh, which you'll see used a couple of times. Alex will be interested in this because he can use this word track. <laughs> and I'll say, there, that's where he's tracking. And, um, and it gives a tremendous dynamic to the scene. And you'll see... We, we've used it once already, and you'll see it coming up again. And it sort of binds together the different elements of the room. And cameramen are wonderful at that. It's, sometimes you think of them as directors, but you don't really, not in the way the cameraman does. And it's because they're always looking through the camera. That's their job, their life, really. And they feel it. You know, they suddenly have a feeling for a scene that it needs to be like this. And um, you'll see when he crosses back now. And it sort of keeps them all connected in the room, really. It's all round a a pivot and love that what you've got to do with a sequence like this is basically direct the shit out of it which is basically what I tried to do with this end sequence um, and we spend a lot of time and money on it so that you'd have a something to get excited about really I guess
this is horrible for the guy underneath, obviously. Um, but it's actually coming out of a pipe at the side of his mouth. It's just being pumped through. It's very pleasant. Kind of Ovaltine, or red Ovaltine or something. I don't know what it is. It's something very pleasant anyway. Although the whole idea of it isn't very nice at all. This, this was a sort of gag, this shot coming up. Um, this left to right, like a tennis match. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, it, it's risky because if people laugh, does that destroy the tension? And if they don't laugh, have you failed to provide a gag? Yeah. This, this was had some cuts in it on grounds of taste. Yeah. This death of um, Bedford, wasn't it? Yeah. I love uh, Marvin here. He's full of such malevolence there. It's fantastic. And he gets jumped by the guy who's actually just got infected on the floor earlier on. I don't know whether they, people have time to take that all on board. And they, they put him on the table here and basically kind of... Uh, sodomize him or it sort of looked like that at one point um and in fact that was one of the ideas that somebody had for the infected is that they should be just raging sex machines you know uh, with constant erections and naked and stuff like that but alex is telling me to calm down ease down a bit on this side of it so okay this is more alice in wonderland this is very nice alice in wonderland moment as she disappears off into the house But it's uh, the, there was the, another at one point. There was another Alice in Wonderland with a, a white rabbit earlier on. Yeah, remember? that's right. God, we never did that, did we? Yeah. There's lots of bits that you, some of which we got in the deleted scenes, which you can see, which used to be in this. It was a, a longer sequence, but we honed it down in the end uh, to the essential ingredients, really, which is basically Jim's return, Jim's entry into the house. Um, although you'll see this man Jones here was killed a different way in the deleted scenes at one point um, but I love the way I do love the way this has been edited this is the way this has been shot and edited really to um, it's it's a it's kind of not it's not just it's visually it's some wonderful things to look at but it, it isn't a kind of pictorial thing it's a visceral thing that you kind of feel you don't necessarily grab hold of things perfectly sometimes, but you're going to get a feeling of running through it yourself. And Having said that, this is the only static moment in it, really, which is uh, a soldier saying goodbye to another soldier, really. So this is the picture of her family that we saw earlier and, and she'd obviously taken from the house, although you never saw her taken from the house, but it felt like a natural thing that she would you would understand in retrospect that she would do. Um, and this is a moment of confusion where it, he calls for her and he could almost be in the infected coming towards her, the idea of Jim being infected in some way, although we know he's not in a way in the way that these guys are. Love the idea of this, the of the infected, kind of drawn to his own image, really, his image of himself and staring at it. And whether he's doing that or whether he's sensing her behind it, I don't know. 
this is this you've got that jerky camera that slight sense of it being not reliable the way it captures the information there's a though that sequence there's a very good example of it um, this is a real bit of film license as well that this very light sofa holds these two infected at bay <laughs> just for the crucial minutes that you need for your seconds for your uh, hero to escape out the window yeah, yeah. even poor old bell yeah junior gets it there i'm afraid does a very good job of most of those deaths are they feel gruesome a lot of it there's nothing really happening a lot of it is sound you know actors just begging for their lives in the sound of their voices what makes you it makes it almost unbearable to watch, really. Um, so this is obviously the final, leading towards a kind of final confrontation or the lieutenant of the, the lieutenant of the, the, re, the lieutenant is uh, the representative at this point of... Well, he's the real evil sod, isn't he? Yeah, he's I guess he sadist. is, yeah. yeah. So he gets reserved for him as the best... Death, I suppose. This is all shot in all these houses in Salisbury. Although we, um, there's a number of pickups in it where we went back later to pick them up. Um, I love the way this is uh, put together by Chris Gill. The, his run across the floor here, and just the sense of him arriving there. And the idea is that. For Selena, what she's seeing is uh, an infected guy um, that in all his uh, movements and actions, he's indistinguishable from yeah. from their enemy. So this looks horrible. That's actually, that is Ricky on the floor there doing a brilliant job of allowing his eyes to be pushed down into <laughs> their sockets. And... Um, uh, it's, That's method acting. You just, yeah, it's just go and, for it. and again one of the things that if you listen to it without sound, it's if you watch it without sound, it's well, it's okay really. But um, you can sort of it's the sound that makes it so unbearable in a way. Um, yeah, and his thumbs being right in his <laughs> sockets adds something. Yeah. So here's where you have a problem because. You have a continuity issue, which is that his thumbs have just been in his eyes, so they'll be covered in blood. His thumbs have just been in his brain. So that when he kisses her like this, his thumbs have got to be covered in gore. So they're doing this kiss, and I'm going, get your hands down, Killian, get your hands down, because I thought nobody's going to watch it, want to watch you kissing her with gore all over your thumbs, because they'll just be thinking about the previous scene, whereas in the manner of film, you always want to move on and leave that behind and move on to the next thing. But he couldn't keep his hands off her, so there you go. There is one shot where not used obviously where his thumb is absolutely covered in bits of material <laughs> it does sort of draw your eye to it yeah it's okay he's not infected this is a very tricky shift of tone here to say the least yeah I like stuff like that though I think you should take those risks with the shift of tone you know and after something horrific like that then you put in a kind of then you just kind of let people off the hook a bit, really, by, mm. by gagging, really, I suppose, in a way. This is all very well manipulated by everybody because, of course, Megan can't drive, and legally she's not allowed to drive because she was 15 when she did the film. And uh, it's very cleverly put together by drivers and 
people pushing the car with her a hold of it, you know, and all that kind of stuff, really. It's also the, the thing that led to uh, a lot of these multiple endings because Jim has been shot and uh, that was the key point. It, it was what happens from that moment, yeah. in a way. Yeah. This was, this was as far as we got with our first budget. Um, in fact, this next shot was our last... Yeah. No, not this one, the last one. This was how the film ended for a long time until we showed it to Fox and then they gave us some more money. And we were able to shoot this sequence which actually takes them out of the grounds, which gets them out of the place. Um, this was all done, yeah, months and months later. Yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, this was the very, very last thing shot in the whole film. Yeah, it was, that particular bit, yeah. And then a lot of people thought the film should end there, for instance, like that, and that, that was the end of the film. I loved bringing back the 28 Days Later. I think, that again, that use of that subtitle is a great... It's just an, a really neat way of doing it. And... This sequence you see here is part of a much longer sequence, which we'll talk about later in the deleted scenes. And we kept a little bit of it in, and the upside-down moment there. Uh, and Jim wakes up again. So it's all binded together, obviously, by him. All bound together. Binded, bound together by him waking up. Um, and Fox gave us the money to go to the Lake District, and actually shoot this ending, and another ending that you'll see on the deleted scenes, really. Um, but it, to be fair, this was always this scene, although in a slightly different way, was always in the original script. The idea of yeah. going to the Lake District, in the shooting script, it, yeah. it was there. Yeah, yeah. but um, the film changed so much during the, the filming. I mean, quarantine, and we, we had all sorts really. And this is this is film now. It's it's not uh, yeah. TV. So now we've moved to 35 mil because we wanted to, it to feel like the film had opened up nature and freedom and uh, some kind of hopefulness, yeah, so that there was a different textual quality. It's actually, on the days we shot on, it wasn't very great weather. It was very cloudy, and so you don't feel it as much as you do, you'd do if it was a sunny day. For instance, when we wrecked this cottage, which belonged to this, these wonderful people and has been there since the... 15th century this cottage um, it was a sunny day and it was absolutely looked magnificent it doesn't quite look so wonderful in the in the cloud but nevertheless it was lovely to be there with them it was quite but I can't think of a bigger contrast to the rest of the film than the, the solitude and peacefulness of this place really like personally speaking it would drive me insane to live there but um, but you could see for an afternoon it was absolutely magnificent <laughs> So, of course, you're, you're asked to believe that this lettering has been made up from just sheets around the house. <laughs> well, there's, there's kind of like the equivalent of 4,000 parachutes <laughs> laid out on this field. <laughs> and this was another good day to be uh, on set because of this plane that wasn't dropped in by special effects afterwards. It was really there flying around and it was a hell of a sight. And the sound of it was incredible. Yeah. Unfortunately, the only one we could get was an RAF jet. It's not meant to be the RAF. It's actually meant to be the Danish Air Force. Finnish, I think. Finnish Air Force, yeah. Because we got a friend of ours, Jukka, to do the, the voiceover at the end of the Finnish pilot. But it, 
sadly, we couldn't change the markings on the plane either. So that's a moment of hope, really, at the end of the film. And it's interesting, because um, we'll talk about the deleted scenes when we come onto those, which is that we did have a very different ending, which was um, a much bleaker ending. And um, I know a lot of people think you change things because of the influence of, of Hollywood or America on, on movies generally, and hopeful endings, happy endings, all that kind of stuff. But actually, the truth of it was that I think we all felt when we watched the film with an audience with our bleak ending on it, that the film was such a gruelling experience to get through that it felt like you had a responsibility, especially on a journey film, which this particularly is, you felt like you had a responsibility to kind of end with an, an, at least a note that the journey might continue in some way, that, they could, that these people could go on in some way. Thanks, thanks for listening. That's that's a lot, really. We'll try and put some commentary on the deleted scenes, and we may not be able to put some commentary on something that we hope will be in the DVD for you. The um, which is this storyboard of a of a very different last quarter to the film, really, which is something that we, we considered at one point. But um, so um, see you there. <laughs>